0: you are listening to the visualizing war podcast in each episode we look at how people have experienced or described armed conflict in different periods and places and we discuss the impact which representations of war and peace can have on us as individuals and societies hello my name is alice kernig and i co-direct the visualizing war project at the university of st andrews Over the next few months, we're releasing a series of one-off podcast episodes connected to some new work we're doing on children's habits of visualising war and peace, and on different ways of visualising conflict resolution and peace-building. My guest today is Dr. Helen Behrens, a Senior Research Fellow in the School of Justice at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. Helen's research focuses on the involvement of children and young people in international conflict and peace-building processes. And she advocates strongly for wider recognition of their contributions and capacities in navigating violence and building peace. Her published research has looked at, among other things, the representation of children and young people in contexts of crisis and conflict and also the stories that young people tell or draw themselves when given the chance. Her book Young People and Everyday Peace was published by Routledge in 2018 Grounded in the stories of young people who live in a small community in Soacha, Colombia, it explores the presence and influence of youth voices in everyday efforts to respond to violence and insecurity, recognising the difficulties of protracted conflict, but also young people's potential to build a sense of everyday peace amidst violence. Helen is currently working on a project funded by the Australian Research Council on Youth Leadership and the Future of Peace and Security, exploring the role of youth led advocacy and engagement in building more inclusive, durable forms of peace in different parts of the world. One aim is to improve the ways in which young people are supported and empowered in conflict affected contexts. And another is to develop new recommendations for the involvement of young people in peace and security policies in future. Helen, the more I've looked at your work, the more exciting and hopeful I've found it. And I can't wait to dig into some more of it today. But before we dive into questions, let me just begin by welcoming you to the Visualising War podcast. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to me at an incredibly early hour in Australia. Um, and, And welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Alice. It's an absolute pleasure
0: to be here and I can't wait to speak with you. So, I think the best place to start, just to help listeners get a feel for your work, is with your 2018 book, Young People in Everyday Peace. Um, as I said just now, it focuses on a particular community in Colombia. So, I wonder if you could start just by giving us a quick background to the violence that's been troubling that particular corner of the world and also the long running efforts to build peace there.
1: Absolutely. So um, Colombia has um, been experiencing an internal armed conflict for almost 60 years. It's the longest running conflict in the Western Hemisphere. The conflict in Colombia is a multi-party internal conflict, initially between leftist um, guerrillas and the state, but there's been a plethora of other actors involved, including right-wing paramilitary groups. The conflict's been running since the late 40s and all illegal armed groups in Colombia, as well as the government um, in, in some ways, have become complicit in various illegal trades beyond just the conflict. So kidnapping, drug production, arms dealing, the recruitment of children, there's been several hundred thousand deaths, a vast majority of which were civilians. And there's a large number of people who've been unaccounted for, who were the victims of abduction, forced disappearance, forced recruitment, and so on. In 2012, there was an announcement of a peace process between the uh, government of then-president Juan Manuel Santos and the FARC, and that resulted in a peace agreement that was signed in late 2016. So these moves at the, I guess, at the negotiating table have shifted the framework of violence, but the FARC was only one of many groups. So the violence has still continued since then. Um, and the peace process has been fragile and halting as well. I think, in terms of my work, one of the things that's really important to note about the conflict in Colombia is that young people have been disproportionately. Affected as they are in many conflicts, or conflicts perhaps. So there are over, I think, 7 million um, people have been internally displaced by the conflict. They've been refugees. More than half of those who have been internally displaced are under 18. We also see Colombia is one of the the countries with the largest rate of landmine victims in the world, and we know that landmine violence accidents neither of those are the the right word, but disproportionately affect young people who are. More likely to be moving around those spaces. The other thing that the conflict in terms of impacts on young people is young people are disproportionately vulnerable to recruitment by armed groups to the conflict. and conflict, as we also know, it has secondary effects. so it disrupts health, it disrupts education, it disrupts employment opportunities, all of which also impact young people. I think the other important feature to talk about also the peace efforts um, is that in this context of very complex and protracted violence, Colombians have been working tirelessly to address it. So human rights defenders and peace builders of all types have long been working to respond to it, both at local levels and kind of informal positions, but that that comes with a lot of risk as well. So since the signing of the peace agreement in 2016, there's been thousands, literally thousands, of human rights defenders killed for their work in the country. So it's an ongoing, challenging context and i think it really highlights the importance of paying attention to the impacts of conflict and looking beyond perhaps those formal processes which can kind of delineate or mark whether we're in peace or war because it's obviously not that not that straightforward and i think columbia really illustrates it
0: Yeah, absolutely. That extraordinarily complex mix of pockets of peace, everyday peace amidst conflict, the the top-down peace processes that absolutely mask ongoing, um, volatile, challenging um, conflict situations. So, Helen, thank you. You've sketched a really clear picture there, not only of an incredibly long-running, multi-layer, multi- multi actor conflict, but uh, it's a very protracted, very complex peace process, which is operating and being developed and being explored on on multiple levels, but with many people remaining impacted by the ongoing violence and many new victims um, every year, every month. So you mentioned, particularly in that um, overview, the way in which young people are disproportionately affected, directly affected, landmine injuries, displacement and so on, but also all these secondary effects as well. Um, and I suppose it's that that got you interested in looking at um, young people's experiences, um, also ultimately young people's agency One review of your book in the Journal of Intervention and State Building, um, uh, there are lots of reviews of your book, all of which are very, very positive. One reviewer writes... The book is a powerful argument that peace exists amidst violence and can be found within the everyday routines and practices of the people who live in insecure and dangerous communities. Behrens convincingly argues that it's necessary to repopulate understandings of peace and violence with the lived and embodied experience of those who are most affected by them. It's refreshing to have an account that takes the totalizing critiques of liberal peace seriously and then acts on it by seeking to understand the interrelationship of violence and peace at the micro level and that really does touch that review really does touch on some of the things that you've started to bring up yourself there and I wonder if you could just unpack that for us a bit first of all what notions of peace are you particularly pushing back against in the book some of our listeners will be really familiar with terms like liberal peace and post liberal peace but others won't so I wonder if you could give us just a few definitions to help everyone kind of you know get the picture of the sort of peace building scholarship.
1: Absolutely, and the very lovely quote that you've read out hints at the kind of peace that I'm interested in in forwarding, but I think, as you say, it's important to frame what I'm critiquing here as well. The liberal peace and the idea of the liberal peace, I think, has become a really powerful conceptual framework that's been promoted as the kind of aspirational model for countries that have been affected by interstate but increasingly intrastate conflict and peace-building efforts. And I think the idea um, of the Liberal peace really builds on post-World War II experiences of groups of mostly Western uh, developed, whichever term we want to use, states who've largely avoided conflict with each other. So that's kind of seen as as a model. And it's viewed as the idea that the Liberal social contract that we have in society that says we should have a commitment to liberal institutionalism, which I can talk about in a minute, but like attention to rights, attention to institutions, attention to markets, the role of international trade as a peace pacifying um, effort. So this idea of liberal peace then emerges there. So we see if we can only make countries look more like that, then peace will follow is, I guess, the, the kind of assumption. There's many critiques of it that have emerged. Uh, quite rightly. Obviously, democracy and human rights are mm-hmm. worthy goals uh, and absolutely are what we should be looking for in countries affected by conflict. But this model um, that often gets used and that we see be reproduced, including things like UN peacekeeping, peacebuilding efforts as well, has several critiques. It's criticised for perpetuating inequality. It's criticised for re-securitizing the state. So we see that kind of peace comes from security institutions and, and things rather than civil society and, and human rights and justice. And primarily also for pursuing a model of state building that is unable to or fails to be responsive to local realities. So, this idea that we can build states, build institutions, and do that anywhere rather than recognizing the specifics of, of local. Um, contexts. And the other thing that I would add that I think moves us beyond liberal peace to to some of the other ideas and ways of thinking is that a lot of that, and I I heard it when I was talking as well, that we start talking about state building rather than peace building. So we start thinking about building states, building institutions, building up those those formal structures, and we stop paying attention to what peace means um, as much in those contexts or assume that we know what it is. So power representation control participation these all become the kind of ideas that become contested um, in the critiques of the of the liberal peace and kind of what they're missing so that's where my work kind of situates it's not my work is not a unique critique there's a very well-established field of work that is is kind of trying to think beyond um, what the liberal peace framework has kind of Mm -hmm. given us particularly through the 90s
0: Again, really helpful. Thank you, Helen. So liberal peace is more of a kind of one size fits all, um, very much top down. And as you say, working on quite macro level assumptions and ideas and tropes, which actually ultimately overlook the realities, the really complex realities of peace, peace building, everyday peace and so on. And and so your book really gets us rethinking about how we visualize not just peace, but peace and conflict and their complex interrelationship. And again, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that and just explain the concept of everyday peace, a peace that can exist and be built in the midst of violence. Yeah, so there's a, a
1: growing recognition that these dominant, frames, uh, not getting us all the way to solutions and to responses to conflict. Um, And there's a great um, quote uh, by Oliver Richmond, who's a a peace and conflict studies uh, scholar. Um, And he talks about the fact that liberal peace works to, to represent And to produce best suited subjects, it imagines the people that that are best suited for the kinds of interventions. And I think one of the things that the critiques do is particularly situate ideas of peace in the local. So it says, let's not look at the institutions. Let's look at what's actually going on on the ground. And so this idea of the everyday peace moves away from that preoccupation with institutions, moves away from the idea of best suited subjects, to use Richmond's words, to instead look at the actors who are marginalised. And I think the other thing that that kind of attention does is it recognises that these things are not binary. It's not institutions or everyday lives, but it rather says there's a complex interconnection between this. What happens if we take that seriously and pay attention to it? It asks also whether those who are not elite can be represented in, in discussions of peace. So I think stepping away from those kind of analyses is really important in a context like Colombia um, because of the reasons I outlined before. Because of the complexity um, of violence, I often refer to Carolyn Nordstrom's idea of the period of um, the period after a peace agreement being a period of kind of hyphenated not war, not peace. So that it's this this complex space that is neither of these things, and we need to better understand it. And would also note that Roxani Cristali has done wonderful work in the Colombian context on the complexities of violence in that kind of context as well. So I think Colombia gives us a, a really good example of what, what paying attention to the local, taking the everyday seriously can, can look like. So an attention to the everyday recognises that violence impacts people's lives and recognises that battlefields and front lines are not the only place where we see Violence. We can see, as I mentioned before, the effects of services that are not available, structural violence that's exacerbated by conflict, gendered violence, sexual violence and so on, but also that people do things to respond to all of those violences in in their everyday lives as well. And so for me, paying attention to, to everyday peace asks us, I guess, to flip our attention and say, what does it look like if we pay attention to The everyday what does it enable us to see in terms of conflict how can we more clearly see an everyday which is usually only the problem or the other to the space where we talk about peace um but which is a form of of life that is common to people who experience and live through conflict in colombia but but everywhere as well so that idea of the everyday peace has been circulating uh in peace studies for the past decade or so and so i really kind of situate myself in those conversations but also particularly draw on kind of feminist theory and, and things to, to inform my inflection to, to how I approach and think about the everyday.
0: Absolutely. So um you 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 said conflict doesn't just happen on the battlefield, but in all sorts of other places. Similarly peacemaking doesn't just happen around negotiating tables, but in many, many other places. And it's this combination of thinking about the micro and the macro, lots of different locals, as well as national and and international. You've mentioned feminist theory, and I'd like to dig into that a little bit more. Um, So you draw a lot on, on a lot of feminist theory in your book, as well as theories of embodied peace. Can you tell us just a little bit more about what feminist theory has particularly brought to your work?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I absolutely consider myself to be a feminist scholar. And one of the reasons I draw on feminist work is because it asks us to be attentive to the politics, to the power, to the privilege that operate in all contexts. And I think it's particularly relevant to look at in, in contexts of, of conflict or, or ongoing violence. And Cynthia Enloe, who's a, a feminist political scientist, political theorist, Says one of the starting points of feminist thinking is to take women's lives seriously, and I think this idea of of seriousness is is really important when we when we think about groups that are often overlooked, um, that are taken less seriously, perhaps. Um, so. Enloe talks about how to take something seriously, you have to listen carefully, you have to dig deep, you have to be ready to be surprised. And I really love that as a a kind of approach and a way of, of thinking to look for what is missing. And so I think that particularly with my focus on young people and children, it's not specifically a gendered focus necessarily. But I think the feminist approach is still really important because feminist interventions give us a really rich language and give us the tools to speak of the everyday when we look at kind of feminist international relations, feminist peace and conflict studies, scholarship, and feminist interventions into theorising embodiment, which is, as you said, the other thing that I draw on in my book, provides a framework, I think, to really recognise the everyday beyond an abstract concept, to recognise the everyday is lived, to recognise there are bodies that move in these places and, and that um, they are impacted and experience violence, but they're also present in building peace as well. So I think that it kind of brings explicit attention to the interactions between lives and structural forces, um, and the nature of, I guess, power over those lives um, in conflict. Veena Das, who's a feminist anthropologist and post-colonial theorist, talks about a descent into the ordinary In her work and looking for kind of agency and bodies experiences of violence and I think that that's a really wonderful way of thinking about how we have to kind of approach these these kinds of questions Cynthia uh, uh, sorry not Cynthia Enloe Christine Sylvester as well who's another feminist international relations scholar says that we can't only study war from the the high places. We have to study it up from people's experience because she says the high places sweep away the tears and the laughter and say that they don't belong. And I think they absolutely belong. So I think we can kind of take seriously those calls by feminist scholarship to to pay attention to the everyday, to locate the bodies into it. And so I think that for me, while there's been a lot of discussions about everyday peace and the importance of the local in peace building what bringing that scholarship in does is let us think about it as embodied and let us think about it as as lived amidst violence um, at the same time.
0: Yeah, that touches back on one of the points you made earlier, you know, these high places tend, sort of thinking from high places uh, um, has a tendency to airbrush, to idealise, to think about the best suited um, actors and so on um, and this descent into the ordinary um, opens up this world of reality of as you say the lived experience and the multiple lived experiences uh, you know sustainable peace building is much more successful if it does pay attention as you put it to those multiple lived experiences and I, I love some of the phrases that you've come up with you know taking women's life seriously taking other people's experiences seriously and you've touched on this a few times this idea that it's listening 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 carefully, ready to be surprised and also looking for what's missing, looking Mm. for the gaps in our understanding and the gaps in our sight, the gaps in our observation and and how we visualize um, what's going on in conflict and in peace. In in another review of your book, the scholar Siobhan McAvoy-Livy has written, Berent's book is a must read for anyone interested in how peace building can be more genuinely inclusive, locally responsive, just and realistic. And I think that's absolutely right. It really does, you know, build on what we've just been saying. She and others have sung your praises for showing what can be achieved if we take children and young people seriously as agents of change. Crucially, I think your book doesn't idealise this. You look at the very complex relationship between young people's agency and their relative powerlessness. And that's something I really want to ask you a bit more about. So in a minute, I think we'll come on to young people's agency and their expertise and what that can contribute. But it would be great to sort of take us back, first of all, and tell us a little bit about typical approaches to and understandings of children in conflict. So how have scholars and policymakers and storytellers indeed typically viewed and represented children in the context of conflict in the past?
1: I think it's really important to to think about this. and. I keep blushing because of your lovely reading out of nice things that are being said about, said about my book, and I'm just glad that they can contribute to these conversations that I think are so important and that it resonates with other people who are working in this space. But I think there's an easy answer and then there's a much more complex answer, and the easy answer is, is that there are powerful and persistent social norms that tell us what childhood is, and that they're historically situated and created and they're enduring and that they reinforce and are reinforced by existing kind of power relations in the way the world is that children are still in processes of development they're in need of protection they're not able to participate in capacity or innocence you know like these kind of ideas that come up that are really powerful and I think that it's important when we start talking about children's agency and capacity that we don't romanticise it and we don't say that that they have some absolute agency that's just being overlooked because children and youth do exist in complex webs of power that marginalises them in particular ways and they do have particular vulnerabilities because of structural conditions, just like all humans have particular vulnerabilities but perhaps they're exacerbated for children. And so I think it's really important that when we start talking about children's agency we can simultaneously say they're often overlooked and they're often not considered and they need to be considered more and not be making an argument for them to not have supports and not have the kind of protections and things that are called for for them at the same time so i think that that's really important when we start thinking about things because it's very easy to fall into this black and white discussion of childhoods as as innocent and problematic in that way or young people as some amazing capacity and and agential actors that we just haven't paid attention to yet. And I think the truth is somewhere between.
0: Yeah, that's a really important point. As you put it, that mix of power and vulnerability that's really important, that's part of the experience of childhood. You've touched on the sort of these notions of the imagined child. It's something that I know um, lots of scholars have written about, these curated images, these stories of children, these ideas of children that shape that, that shape our habits of visualizing children but also end up shaping our habits of visualizing war and indeed mm. visualizing peace uh, you know we've all in the last few months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine we've seen children being used in news narratives for example to help mediate adult views and experiences of the war using this of the image of children as victims children as innocent for example children as utterly powerless to help capture the dreadful impact of the conflict mm. um, so it's not just that we have these powerful persistent social norms of visualizing children but that then deployed and they're then leveraged sort of promote other habits of looking and I know you've written about this you've written about this on your blog you've written about it in articles as well on your blog you've got a piece called children and crises and I just want to read a tiny bit of it A photo of a dead three-year-old refugee boy on a Turkish beach goes viral. A hashtag started in Africa becomes a call for action in the global north to rescue schoolgirls from extremists. A 15-year-old is shot in the head and once recovered continues her activism for girls' education. A grieving father clutches his dead nine-month-old twins after a gas attack in Syria. A toddler lit by bright headlights cries for her mother being arrested at the US border What are the consequences of the creation, circulation, and reception of images of children in situations of conflict and crises? How are young people particularly suited for virality? And what does it tell us about both the situation the child finds themselves in and how those far from the crisis understand the politics and humanity? How are we asked to read their bodies, their lives, their stories? What are the uneven global power relations, the gendered and racial and youth implication of these images? And what you're getting at there is the way in which children, images of children, stories of children go viral, and then can become a shorthand for a conflict or a crisis. I wonder if you can just talk us through that a little bit more. I think that you really touch on it, you know, the
1: list that you've you've read from my blog, but also you mentioned Ukraine. So these things Uh, constant and repeating. We see this happen over and over. And I think that that's really important to note that we keep having this this conversation, that there is something about images of children that captures us, that John Berger says kind of seizes us when we see these kinds of uh, distressing images, not just about children. And I think that we often take it for granted. We often say that these images appear and they shape our understanding and we don't actually stop and ask why is it images of children that keep being used, what is it about children and childhoods in particular that mean that somehow we are meant to care more about things that are happening far away from us often, sometimes close, than, say, if it was a 40-year-old man in the in a similar situation, for example. And I think one of the things that's really important and I want to, I guess, emphasize before we continue is that we use the word we and our. So how does it shape our understanding? How do we understand these images? And I think that the we is conditional as well. And that's really important to note. I am a white, well-educated woman in the global north who is engaging with these images and in a a news context in Australia that that puts these images up, that looks very different if you are perhaps in Ukraine right now or if you are in North Africa looking at the coverage of the migrant crisis in 2015 or if you're in Mexico looking at the discussions about the border with the US. So I think that we need to be very conscious of our positionality and who the kind of presumed audience is when these images do go viral and do get used. And a really great example of it, I think when Alan Kurdi died, the three-year-old boy who was on the Turkish beach in the midst of the crisis uh, in 2015, and his image was everywhere, his aunt was in Canada and his aunt was being interviewed and being heartbroken by seeing These images and seeing this discussion of the way in which her family was being talked about and described and, you know, the critiques of Alan Curdy's father for putting them on the boat and, you know, there was this really vitriolic discourse about the family as well that caused the death of Alan Curdy. and she wasn't meant to see the image and she wasn't meant to be able to speak right like in the in the assumed way that these narratives happen that image wasn't for her and the family wasn't meant to have a voice that this image was for a global western audience that reacted to it so i just think it's i know that i went off topic a bit from your question but i think it's important to think about the the we and the our that we talk about when we think about who these images are for and how they're being produced because i think that that is really important in who the we is, who is understanding the conflicts through these images of children.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's all part and parcel of this, as you've put it in one of your articles, the visual politics of childhood, that awareness of positionality, that awareness of who these visual politics are being created for, who Mm -hmm. they're landing with, all of that Is part of what we should be investigating when we're critiquing the images that become iconic of children, which then go on to have all sorts of ripple effects, not least because they condition how we expect future children to behave and what we anticipate their experiences might be and the stories we end up going on to tell about them, curating their experiences almost before they've lived them. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about the way in which children's images, children's stories might be manipulated, curated reproduced for a global audience, for an audience in the global north, perhaps in particular, to land political points, to uh, uh, um, generate particular um, emotions and sympathy. But you have also written about what happens when children themselves take charge of the story. So in an article called This Is My Story... Uh, you've looked at children's war memoirs and looked at the way in which they can actually challenge some of the protectionist discourses and the habits of visualising children as uncomprehending victims, those protectionist discourses and habits of visualisation which tend to silence children's voices. Mm. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit about what you found in the memoirs of the children you studied, um, and how their stories and their voices might challenge this marginalisation of children from conversations on conflict.
1: My goodness, yes. So I think your, what you just said is is really key, that a lot of those that discussion we're having about the kinds of images, children are voiceless and they're mm-hmm. silent. And sometimes that is because they're already dead that they cannot have a voice in terms of how they they appear and so I think that things that run counter to that and provide us this this alternative space where young people can tell their story are really key and there is a large and growing genre of children's war memoirs um, and while my perhaps morbid curiosity and fascination with collecting images of children suffering in global context to better understand it, I also found myself accumulating <laughs> these books that are written by young people as well. So people might be familiar with books like Ishmael Bayer's A Long Way Home from the early 2000s about his time, uh, his Sierra Leonean time in the conflict there. More recently, we've seen books that have gained quite a lot of attention like Malala Yousafzai has written a book called I Am Malala which also then got released in kind of a young adult version, which I think is really interesting, too. But there's a much bigger um, collection of these books um, that I find really fascinating and I think are really important sites of young people's um, voice. So eight-year-old Bana Alabed, abed who started tweeting in the midst of the Aleppo siege in Syria, then um, with assistance, wrote a book uh, called Dear World, Or I am Evelyn Amory, which talks about her time as the wife of the Lord's Resistance Army's Joseph Kony, or other stories of uh, migration and forced displacement like Mijid Mustafa's um, book that tells the story of escaping the war in Syria to Europe in a wheelchair. So these kind of books that, that exist that tell stories by young people. And I think that what makes them so interesting is that they are both a powerful but also a culturally recognized space for children's voices in war it's a it's a format and it's a, a way of telling stories that is that is understood and that is that is given weight by the fact that it is a memoir itself so I think that they provide this really excellent site where we can see children's agency and we can see complex stories um, because they're not just sound bites, which is how young people's experience of war is often presented, right? They they get to stand up and speak at the UN for five minutes, or they appear on the news. Bing vox popped as they arrive somewhere or whatever. Memoirs give space for a more complex account of their experiences, and I think they can help us. And again, refer to the previous we our conversation, but can help us better understand children's experience of conflict. And in their best form, they can prompt action they can prompt investment in solutions that kind of account for children's agency and i think at a minimum they expose readers to experiences that are beyond their daily lives and hopefully foster a a greater awareness of the complexities of of violence but also the resiliency of of children who live in these contexts and i think they offer a really powerful counterpoint to The experiences of children in conflict, which is really often characterized by a kind of protectionist ethic. So I think documents like the Convention on the Rights of the Child, for example, formalizes participation. Right, It's a guiding principle of the document, but often participation is overlooked because of the urgency of context in conflict. The drive to protect children kind of precedes everything else. And just like nothing is black and white, of course, these children need to be protected as well, but we need to think about more complex narratives and things that are going on. So I think children's war memoirs can really provide a space and point us to ways in which children's own stories might not complicate it solely, but also offer ways in of thinking more complexly about how we might protect as well as support young people who are experiencing trauma and experiences of war
0: as you say, the, the, the memoir giving that space for that more complex picture that that goes back to some of the points that you've made about everyday peace these multiple lived experiences that operate on different axes where there's a complex mix of violence and respite from violence or everyday pockets of peace and moments of joy alongside you know wider shadows of terror or displacement or ongoing violence in the background i'm really intrigued by the point you've just made actually that We And again, thinking about positionality and so on. Um, So I'm, you know, sort of thinking through who that we might be. Uh, But it's a historic we not simply a, a culturally located we, a historic we that is willing to listen to children's voices when they appear in a certain genre. Mm. Um, So when they're in the memoir format or when they're perhaps in the drawing format, uh, I suppose our smaller inclination to listen to children's voices, perhaps in other media. So that might be something that we go into um, another day. But it's a a question that I've earmarked for the future Mm. because I find that a really fascinating point. Um, But I just want to come back now, if I may, to your study of young people living in Los Altos de Cacuza in Colombia. So you've talked us through what we might learn, what we can understand, and perhaps even then action when we do pay attention, when we listen carefully to children's voices, war memoirs and and conversations more generally. But it would just be interesting now if you could tell us a little bit more about the reality that you found on the ground during your study um, in Colombia, what you found there about the agency and the expertise of children and young people in navigating violence and building everyday peace.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to talk more about the wonderful young people in in that community. So the book and the work that I did was situated in one particular community, Los Altos de Casuca, which is on the outskirts of the capital of Colombia. It's actually in Soacha, which is a neighboring city, but the urban spread means that it's touching and it's a community that is overwhelmingly forcibly displaced it's incredibly poor it's informal or illegal so they've moved to the hillside and built houses that are not formally (laughs) allowed to be there and that means that there's often a lack of access to resources to government support because it's not a formal site of the of the city although it is being formalized and the territory is controlled and contested by illegal armed groups that a lot of these communities kind of on the outskirts of major cities in Colombia as is true in many other places, are a good entry point for arms, drugs, you know, kind of moving in and out through those spaces. So it has this image as this kind of irredeemably bad place. And when I was talking to young people in it, they would often tell stories about, for example, their father trying to get work and lying about where he lived because if he says where he's from, he won't get work because he's absolutely a thief, you know, like those kind of really pervasive and problematic narratives. So, the young people that I was working with and speaking to when I was there in, I was there first in 2010, so pre peace talks, were under the age of 18. They were largely between 10 and 18. And then I was lucky enough to go back five years later, 2016 when the peace agreement was being discussed it wasn't quite signed yet so they're the kind of two moments that I was there and I got to speak to some of those young people again particularly the older ones who are now in their early 20s so that's the kind of age of the young people that I was speaking to and I think what was really interesting is we have this narrative and idea of the community yet the people who lived there resist it and they work together to strengthen the community and they have pride in the community particularly interestingly for the young people they often either were born in the community itself or they were very young when they were forcibly displaced and I had several young people in conversations say they're from La Loma they're from the hillside they belong there that's their I identity. So it's not a transitional space, it's a space that they're very proud to come from and to work against those narratives and kind of participate in community building that kind of builds up those narratives. They engage in leadership training, they engage in networking, there's um, great examples of like the, the the local group that is trying to petition and push the the municipal government to get better access to services and one of the young women i was speaking to her mum sat on that committee that group and she kept provoking her mum and saying why are there no young people we should you know you should invite young people to be part of these discussions as well um and the adults said we will consider it right so this kind of open discussion about young people trying to, to to get more involved particularly when they're often most at risk of the violences that are in the communities of the violence perpetrated by the gangs of recruitment by the gangs. interruptions to their education forms of physical violence sexual violence, like these kinds of risks that young people face, so I think that. What's really interesting when we look at the the agency and the capacity of young people is they don't have the ear of the government, they don't have those formal channels to speak to, but it doesn't mean that they're passive and it doesn't mean they're not doing the work. And so I think that they argue incredibly compellingly for their inclusion and incredibly compellingly for their rights and what they should be entitled to as Colombian citizens and things. And then we see in really small ways. So there's a couple of examples um that i came across including things like there are street lights in the community and um, they're not very well maintained at all and the municipal government wouldn't replace the bulbs that have broken which made it dark and that's dangerous i mean people aren't out after dark much anyway but if you have to move, the light's important. And so the community came together to buy the light bulbs and put up the ladder to go and, like, replace them and that young people were really present in doing that work to make the community safer. And it seems like such a small thing, oh, some light bulbs or whatever, but I think it's really emblematic of a lot of these small everyday micro activities that go on that collectively build capacity and resilience and a collective sense of belonging and ability to do things you know to return to our conversation about kind of liberal peace i don't think it's a dichotomizing thing it's not that there is an idea of liberal peace and then there's what these young people are doing in the community because young people are very aware they believe in the value of many of the promises of of Liberal piece of democracy right they want their rights and they understand how they're excluded and disenfranchised by the discourses that dominate. So they want to claim those things and that they work to strengthen relationships both within peer groups and intergenerationally to try and claim some of those things on their own terms, and I think that's what's so powerful about paying attention to those small spaces.
0: I think one of the things that strikes me most about what you've just outlined there is the level of ingenuity. So as you say, I mean, I think it's really fascinating to think about the relationship, not the contrast between you know, liberal peace, the kinds of structures and ideas that come with that and this everyday grassroots peace building or peacemaking or everyday peace that somehow potentially fuel each other. Um, you, As you say, the idea is that the awareness of rights, the aspiration for certain aspects of liberal peace, whether that's sort of more democratic participation or whatever it might be, actually generating activity and generating a kind of a sense of empowerment, but then these young people not having, as you say, the channels, not having the ear of government, not having the kind of processes that adults have, and so finding new ways, finding different routes around and that might be one of the ways in which their capacity is really refreshing and different and adds value that that adults who simply go through the kind of the normal processes and the channels that that are open to them don't explore because they don't need to and therefore you know don't exercise that level of ingenuity so I think that's quite an interesting observation there Um, so that's, you know, just a small snapshot of some of the things you found on the ground about the the agency um, that children can exercise and, and young people in navigating violence and building everyday peace. Since you were writing your book, your work has broadened quite a lot to look at where young people more generally might belong in peace building. And it would be great if we could talk a little bit about that now. So your study in Colombia focused mostly on the impact that young people can make in a very local context on the ground but your wider work's been looking at how children and young people might be afforded agency also at national and international levels. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about where typically we tend to imagine young people belonging in the peacebuilding space and whether that's changing.
1: This is such a a good question to follow our previous discussion because one of the things that I'm really conscious of in my my work in Colombia and my earlier work is that I absolutely believe in the value of paying attention to the everyday embodied peace that's built by young people, because I really think that kind of, as you say, we can look for these alternative ways and and find these alternative spaces. And if we can see their capacity and expertise, we can meet them there and we can support them there and build peace. But I think also one of the cautions is not only seeing young people where they are, but imagining where young people might be and what it might offer us, not just to improve young people's lives, but to improve the quality of peace that we might build and improve solutions to war and to protracted conflict and to violence. So where they are matters, but it's also they're there because they're rarely allowed to be anywhere else. I think that young people belong, quote, unquote, at the local, in the everyday, in school, quietly making the tea while adults have the serious discussions, right? They're not welcome, they're not seen as belonging in decision-making rooms, they're not seen as belonging in the halls of power, much less holding power in those places, right? So they don't even get a foot in the door, let alone being a person of note in some of those formal institutional decision-making processes. And I think that's partly to go back to our conversation of the capacities of children, how children are seeing these pervasive norms and understandings and stereotypes about young people that say they don't have the expertise, that say they don't have the capacity to participate. And so they are written out before they're given a chance. So I think that we often see young people's advocacy at local levels because that is where they're allowed to be. And that is super important and we should support that work because that's where young people are. But I think we also need to think about where else they might be and see them when they're already there, because sometimes they are, but also think about what it means to make space and what it might look like to consider expertise and capacity differently so young people do have a voice in the room, so to speak, around decisions that have been made around peace and security.
0: And of course, the UN's youth peace and security agenda is potentially accelerating progress in that space. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that. that Some momentum has been building since 2015, basically, around this UN youth peace and security agenda.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, as you say, since 2015, this is a global agenda. It was formalized by a UN Security Council resolution, uh, Resolution 2250. And the resolution was groundbreaking in and of itself because as we talked about these dominant frameworks of capacity one of the other pervasive narratives particularly when we move from talking about children to talking about youth is that youth are disruptors they're peace disruptors they're spoilers to peace processes they're always potentially violent and a risk to those those things and that's how we've seen youth in particular framed in discussions of international peace and security. And so what's so groundbreaking and so fascinating and holds so much potential about the youth peace and security agenda is it formally recognised for the first time young people's potential positive contribution to, in the words of the Security Council, the maintenance of international peace and security. And I think that it really opened a door. It's not perfect. I have many kind of critiques to make of the agenda But it opens space and it formalizes space. And in some interviews that I've been doing, particularly with youth advocates and activists, they talk about it as being a piece of paper that they can take back to their governments or take to local civil society organizations, whatever level they might be working on, and saying, We do belong, you need to let us into this space. So I think that it does offer this way of accelerating and providing space and momentum, but it still definitely isn't uphill struggle.
0: It provides a kind of an authoritative starting point I suppose. It's that as you say it's that ticket through the door somehow in which you can wave at people but it's it's an uphill struggle presumably because it requires all the actors all the adults who've been happily conversing around the table with their assumptions about norms of childhood and so on to rethink an awful lot of categories to rethink what kinds of expertise are necessary if you are bringing children in and you know you've got these ideas that children are still developing that children are vulnerable and so on all of which remains true while recognizing that children have ingenuity have expertise of their own lived experience it requires you to rethink the kinds of expertise that you deem permissible around policy making table or whatever it might be so understandable that um, it feels like an uphill struggle. Are you aware that there are sort of significant regional differences or differences in different kinds of global governance space um, where there's perhaps a little bit more progress than others? So absolutely there have been
1: regional differences and different kinds of reception to the agenda, as well as differences within the institution of the UN itself as well. So it absolutely is an uphill struggle. But I think what's really interesting is that there are particular organisations and particular bodies that are willing to think about, as as you were talking about, this kind of, it's a challenge to the power that adults hold in these spaces to say young people are also welcome and young people's voice matters. For example, the African Union is very receptive to the agenda and has really kind of implemented it and, and brought it in and put forward a a 10-year plan, like a continental framework for youth peace and security, which is really interesting because that moves it beyond the UN and it starts building it into other bodies and and other spaces. There also has been a lot of scepticism, and I also think that there are just a lot of agendas. There's a lot of different actors and efforts, and so governments civil society organisations are trying to implement a lot of things. Let's try and include women more. Let's try and include Indigenous people more. And I think the point is all of those things matter and I think young people matter just as much, but that is where the struggle kind of comes from, where you're competing against a lot of other voices Mm -hmm. for space in the room as well, all of which challenge the existing power structures and that kind of dominant frameworks um, that exist.
0: Yeah absolutely there's a lot of a lot of work there are a lot of marginalized voices who uh, uh, need to be brought round the table and um, absolutely youth voices are one amongst a crowd so you mentioned earlier that you've been interviewing young peace builders i mean i think you're conducting a survey of, of youth peace builders to find out a little bit more about their experiences you know all around the world and the kinds of changes that they might be noticing I don't know how far on with this study you are but it'd be interesting if you were able to tell us any of your findings yet. Are there causes for optimism? Are you identifying particular barriers and challenges that young peace builders are, are telling you about?
1: Absolutely. So it's very much a work in in progress at the moment, but I'm very happy to to speak about it. I think that it's such a privilege to get to speak to these young people as well as um, to have them fill out the the survey as well and share those kinds of experiences. And one of the things that really stands out to me already in the conversations I've been having and the, the information I've been getting is young people are doing a lot of very different kind of peace building work. It is, unsurprisingly, locally contextual. So the kinds of challenges and issues that different young people are facing in different parts of the world mean they do different peace work. But I think that's also a strength because what we can see is the diversity of spaces that young people are actors and have capacity in responding to violence and to building peace in particular ways. And while there is that diversity of activity and action there absolutely are some common barriers. And I actually find myself joking with interviewees when I ask about the challenges they face, because universally the first thing that they say, and I say I should start a timer from the interview to see how quickly it happens, is funding and resourcing. So young people do not have access to funding, access to resourcing, access to supports to be able to effectively do the work they want to do at times. And that comes from two places. That is the lack of, of any kind of funding for peace building work and resolve and conflict resolution. That's not unique to young people, right? We, there's plenty of money for war and very little money for responding to war. But it also comes from these stereotypes and assumptions that young people cannot access grants, cannot access funding, either because they're not trusted to or because of structural circumstances, their organization isn't registered, or they don't have enough money to do the the intermediary step to then be able to access money. They can't open a bank account, whatever those kind of issues might be. So I think funding and resourcing is a huge barrier. I think one of the other really persistent ones is the stereotypes, and young people talk about this, the fact that. They demonstrate over and over again their capacity to contribute what they have done, provide evidence, and they're still denied access or they're still relegated to, you know, the corner or the youth spot. And then the adults keep talking, you know, those kinds of issues. I think one of the things that's incredibly important is whether or not they're supported by adults and what allyship looks like in the work that young people do for peace. And I think that that can be both very localized and actually it's a feature that I'm finding in the discussions about youth, peace and security, but also for my work in Colombia, the young people who I spoke to in Los Altos de equally said when adults believe in us and adults tell us we have the capacity, we believe more in ourselves, right? And that's true at kind of any level. So I think if they have that support and if they have institutions that perhaps support them, whether that be an adult civil society organisation, whether that be that formal kind of recognition from, say, the African Union or, or other regional bodies, it gives them the capacity. The final thing that I would say is you asked about optimism and I think that that's really interesting because I think that there are many flaws in the agenda just like any, any formal institutional document. Um, But what it has done is its existence has legitimized the work that young people were already doing in a lot of these places. It's not like the UN created this agenda and young people went, oh, I guess I should work on peace building now. Young people were doing it long before the UN realized it was a thing that they should pay attention to which they realise because of the advocacy of young people, by the way. So I think that the the existence of these formal structures provides some kind of optimism and and potential for young people to keep doing the work they're doing.
0: So some reasons for optimism then in the growing recognition, but also... A range of ways in which adults at a local level but also at a really really high level can be different kinds of allies and can demonstrate trust and you know repose trust in young people that funding issue is you know that there are so many red tape logistical barriers that one hopes could be cut through but you know one suspects might take a very long time to untangle I think one of the things that struck me when you were talking about the fact that young people are doing very very different kinds of peace building in very different contexts is the potential for them also to be allies to each other and the conversations that young people might have together about their very very different kinds of peace building activities um, presumably a real opportunities to share expertise and experience definitely So some of your work has looked at the impact of gender on how we perceive children in conflict, and I wonder if you've noticed anything about, you know, the different barriers that girls and boys face in being taken seriously as agents or experts on on either conflict or peace.
1: I think this is, is really important to consider. So, I mean, I said before that I'm a feminist scholar, but my primary unit of analysis isn't gender, it's age. But I think that we have to think intersectionally about this. We have to think about the way in which young people are both um, a product of their age, their product of their gender, they're racialized, they're classed, right? Like young people, just like like everyone, um, experiences the intersections of these kinds of facets of their identity. And I think one of the the really interesting things to pay attention to is how gender appears differently between different ages of young people. So children versus youth perhaps. And I know we slid, I guess, a little bit in our conversation before because the youth peace security agenda formally is over 18. It doesn't actually include children because the UN was trying to create a differentiation there. But I think when we think about these gender categories, young children are often seen as vulnerable victims. And when we start talking about youth or is often used as a shorthand actually for young men and actually coded as masculine and dangerous. And so it kind of fall into that pattern. And Erica Berman has a uh, this is wonderful phrase that, that I often return to where she says the typical assumption is Good girls need to be saved and bad boys need to be contained. And so this becomes the dominant framework in how we think about the different gendered experiences of young people um, who are affected by conflict. So when a young person is seen as vulnerable, as passive, it emphasises childlike characteristics. This is kind of coded as feminine, regardless of the gender of the the young person. When young people exhibit risky behaviour, we start, as I said, seeing this word youth. This kind of masculine, masculinized connotations of dangerous bad boys, to use Berman's words, and I think if we're talking particularly about how we visualize and kind of see children in these contexts, we see these images of young girls as as victims, as passive sufferers. They often become conflated. Cynthia Enloe talks about women and children with no spaces in it, right? As a as a category of analysis that is feminized that is passive that is vulnerable that is the counterpoint to the masculinized protector of the state that needs to protect the the women and children but we also can see and often becomes particularly visible is when girls exceed that capacity and i mean we talked i talked a bit about in the memoirs discussion Malala Yousafzai but i think she's a wonderful example here because she's exceeded what should be expected of a young girl living in the Swat Valley and you know all the struggles But that acceptance of her and her narrative is conditional. So she's legitimized when it reinforces a particular view of girlhood. She's asking for more education. She's saying girls should, you know, have rights and be able to be educated. But one of the anecdotes I really like and that really illustrates this is Malala Yusuf met. Barack Obama when he was president and in the um, Oval Office and she challenged him on the US's use of drones in the Swat Valley and in Pakistan, saying that it's causing ongoing violence, saying it's, you know, fueling conflict. And it was covered almost universally in the media as this kind of footnote, you know, Malala raised this issue, but it was a lovely meeting with the Obama's daughters also in attendance, right? So we see where you can and can't perform gender as it intersects with age as well and I think that that's really important to pay attention to when we think about the way in which we're seeing young people and the gendered connotations not only the age connotations there.
0: Yeah I mean that story really draws attention to another social norm isn't it that While we might celebrate a young girl from the Swat Valley, now a young woman, of course, speaking out on education, speaking up for her rights, we, and again, who's this we, um, are uh, rather more ambivalent potentially about the idea that she might have a a view on military strategy and a complex view of that and a challenging view and a view that is challenging a very very significant authority figure so yeah so that's a that's a really interesting observation and you mentioned that that one word women and children and I think one of the things that I've noticed a lot in the media coverage of the war in Ukraine is the way in which the distinction between women and children and men as protectors of state has been incredibly strongly reinforced in reality, but also very much in the storytelling and in the images that we're seeing, you know, in our news footage on a daily basis. So we could talk a lot more about the limited representations of girlhood and the the sort of different barriers, not discounting the challenges that young men face mm. um because of the assumptions that are, are are made about youth, masculine behavior, risky behavior, disruptive behavior, and so on. You know, We could carry on talking about that, but actually I I want to get on to one or two other issues. So one of the things that reinforces some of these gender stereotypes, of course, is popular culture. And it's something that you've written about. You've written an article, for example, on the Harry Potter series, looking at it as a war story and analysing Hermione's experiences as a window onto how girls experience or at least are expected to experience conflict. But you've also written and spoken about the representation of children and civilians more generally in video games that depict war. And I wonder if you can take us through that a little bit. What what habits of visualising war do video games promote and what implications do they then have for how we view children, their experiences and their agency in conflict?
1: Yeah, so popular culture is so crucial to how we understand and and visualise and imagine conflict and peace. I mean, we've spoken a lot in this conversation about news images and kind of dominant frames, but I think we can't underestimate popular culture. And I think while it both reinforces these kinds of narratives, it also offers a space for young people as well as adults to encounter and and, and consider and think about what conflict and violence is. So if we talked about memoirs, perhaps things like thinking about the Harry Potter series as a war story, thinking about Hermione Granger as a child soldier, thinking about perhaps the impact of intergenerational trauma that goes on in the, in the Harry Potter series. is an orphan. His parents were killed in a conflict, right, that had been ongoing, is a way in to start thinking about some of those. So then maybe you encounter the memoirs, then maybe you encounter the news stories as you grow up. And I think that video games similarly provide a really important space that is often overlooked when we think about how war is conceived by and produced particularly for western or global north audiences so i think that when we talk about video games in these kinds of conversations what we're actually talking about are blockbuster or AAA a video games we're talking about the the multi-billion dollar industry that produces war games quite often and these are often reductive playgrounds, right? They hide collateral damage. They sidestep questions of war crimes. You know, they are they are a place to play. And I think that it's really important to consider the fact that they are a multi-billion dollar industry. The military entertainment complex is a very real thing and that there are particular video games that the army and the Pentagon in the US, for example, is involved in informing and building, just like there are games where you can hold particular weapons that are like licensed from the manufacturers to be able to appear in the games, right? So this this is a really complex thing that is is going on. And I think making that visible then allows us to think about how war is framed. So thinking about the depiction of conflict in video games, then we can think about what decisions may have led to that being the way that we imagine conflict and erasing the messiness because it is meant to A medium for play. It's meant to be a, a recreational activity. But I think one of the things that is really interesting also is to not let our conversations about video games only be about the blockbusters because video game industry is bigger. I think it's important to think about what perhaps they are ignoring and overlooking, but perhaps other smaller, more critical games that exist that kind of can prompt new reflections and think about that medium as a way also of engaging more critically in in the consequences of war as well.
0: Yes, and I suppose if the video game industry goes the way of traditional media, you know, increasingly we might be moving away from an industry that's dominated by a few big players. And, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the interest that all sorts of players have in in pursuing the unusual, in pursuing less well-known games and going down all sorts of different avenues. I suppose the follow on question. So I I know that you've done some work, for example, around video games and apps that can become a tool for thinking about agency and awareness raising in human trafficking. And so that gets me thinking about the role that video games, not blockbusters necessarily, but, uh, you know, more of the indie industry, that the role that they might have to play in changing how we visualize children as peace builders or how children themselves you know might end up visualizing themselves as peace builders not simply as civilians who might be collateral damage or whatever what role do games have to play in empowering and educating children as peace builders potentially
1: yeah i think it's a it's a hard question to answer because i think just like many of these conversations we've had there are pervasive norms and stereotypes that come into play and in the work that i was doing looking particularly around some of the awareness-raising apps around human trafficking that I was doing with my colleague Erin O'Brien and uh, Brendan Keogh, we saw more often than not the reproduction of problematic and lazy stereotypes. It's very hard to tell those complex stories, but it can happen. And I think there's two parts to your question. One is about video games that may tell us more complex stories about children's experiences of war and i think that there have been some efforts there's a really interesting game from 2014 called this war of mine which was produced by 11-bit studio and it draws on examples of experiences of the siege of sarajevo and asks the player to to experience conflict as a civilian just trying to live day to day so it's not optimistic it's it's quite a grim story you're going out foraging for food, you have to decide whether you're going to pick up a weapon and, you know, kill other civilians to survive, you know, like those kind of questions. And they released the kind of add-on called the little ones, which means there's actually children in the game as well. You encounter children and discuss it. And so there's some really complex things going on there in terms of visualizing, actually representing children's experiences of war as well. The other part of your question is, can video games enable children to be better peace builders or teach young people skills about Peace building and I think that that's a question that perhaps a a media studies person or a a child psychologist or something would have a different or a a more detailed account of as well but I think there's real potential for video games just like any medium for telling stories and skill building for young people and doesn't directly have to be let's put young people in Sarajevo and make them survive but can be games and skill building around cooperation rather than competition so how can we look at what games might look like that teach those quote-unquote good skills for young people to become better citizens and better able to engage with and understand their world and build those skills just like reading complex novels YA novels that talk about the challenges of being young can kind of teach young people to reflect on those skills as well I think the final thing I'd just say on, on kind of designing those kind of games and again it returns to feminist scholarship is it's important not only to tell stories about marginalized groups, but tell stories by marginalized groups. So what would it mean for young people to design the kind of game they want to see about understanding peace and and responding to to violence? So I think that we can think about perhaps that as as a pathway as well. What does it mean to involve young people in imagining video games that respond differently to war?
0: Absolutely. Actually, very recently, I was fortunate enough to judge some of the artwork for the competition that Never Such Innocence, a charity that gives children and young people a voice on conflict, runs every year. And one of the artist entries for One Age Category was a painted still of a video game which they had imagined would teach peace building would teach players in a game actually to pause the conflict to pick their opponent up off the ground to enter into a dialogue and you're absolutely right that having young people around the design table gets us away from the imagined child and potentially taps into that extraordinary capacity of young people who are already doing very different kinds of peace building in very different contexts around the world you have a, an awful lot teach adults about it your point about games that might teach valuable skills that are transferable to the peace building context is a really interesting one and it got me thinking a little bit about whether or not that it just sort of reveals a wider trend in peace education generally which is that on the whole I think in school curricula it perhaps in books that are written for children in particular for young children maybe in in films that are aimed at children animated films and so on that we might as adults be teaching some very very valuable peace building skills to children, but we often don't teach them in an explicit context of conflict. And maybe there's a question to be raised there about whether there ought to be a little bit more kind of explicit linking up so that children and young people perhaps feel more empowered to cross that line between resolving a conflict in a classroom and seeing themselves as people who have agency and capacity in a wide, scary world. Helen, I've kept you talking for a good while now, so I'm going to draw things to a close. Your current work is very future focused. And what we've just been talking about is sort of looking to the future and thinking about um, um, possibilities that have yet to be realised. So I'd like to end with another question on that front. Just ask you about where you see your work going in future. And also whether you feel optimistic that what you're arguing for in your published work will feel more mainstream and be being implemented more in the near future.
1: I am a pragmatic optimist. I can't help but being optimistic. And I really feel like I'm hopeful that my work will contribute to these conversations. And I can't imagine why I would be doing this work if I didn't feel it would. So I think that's a, I guess, kind of a, there's like an ethical position, but also kind of a default position for me that says, I hope that this work will have impact. I don't think that I'm, going to create magical change by myself but be part of and push these conversations further forward whether that's in academic context that says we should take these more seriously what does it mean to imagine more complexly we include young people as well as engaging with and being an active part of practitioner and advocacy communities through my through my research and with my research because I feel like things like the youth peace and security agenda Are spaces for optimism and for the tangible shifts in the conversation, but I also think the challenges remain really real and really significant and I mean we've mentioned Ukraine several times in this conversation because it's the moment that we're speaking in, but I really feel like it just reinforces those really kind of significant challenges that we're, we're looking at. But I am optimistic, and I think that one of the things that I hope will become a broader part of the conversation and, you know, that I hope my work can contribute to is thinking about questions of expertise. So not only thinking about where we can include children better, but what does it mean to recognise their expertise and what has to change to recognise their expertise? And I think given that the context, the frame of this conversation is about visualising war and peace, what does genuinely recognising children and young people's expertise offer us in visualising and imagining war as well as peace differently. Um, And so I hope that those kind of conversations continue to push all of this forward so that there is that kind of move and change.
0: Absolutely. What does it mean to recognise children's expertise is a really crucial question alongside how can we ensure that children and young people are better resourced to do some of the work that they're doing you know with with huge impact in different parts of the world if you wanted to suggest one more change or two more changes or give advice to policymakers or practitioners or school teachers going forward to realize some of the aspirations that you have for involving children and young people more fully as agents of change and expert voices on conflict and peace what other changes would you like to see could really make a difference
1: Yeah, I think there's two. And I think they're both intangible and tangible at the same time. I think the first one is that we as adults and whatever that we might look like, but particularly as adults need to reflect on our unconscious bias about where we think children, quote unquote, belong in conversations about war and peace. And I think we also need to reflect on our bias about what it means to Genuinely, not just meaningfully include them, which gets talked about, but genuinely include them and recognize that might mean seeding power as adults and not just bringing them into adult situations, but that kind of challenge to ourselves about what does it mean to genuinely make space for children? And the second is part of that, which is how might we put aside our assumptions of knowing best as adults um, to to bring young people to bring children in that will enable us to build alternative futures and alternative ways of doing that are with children and youth and that work to resolve conflict and build peace for everyone. So when we talk about children and youth, it's not just about making children and young people's lives better, but to recognize that we can build alternative futures that are better for everyone if we do it in partnership with young people themselves. Yeah,
0: that final point is such an important one because quite often youth involvement is often framed as doing something for the benefit of young people. But the point you're making is that this is for the benefit of absolutely everyone. Um, yes. And as you say, those, those two very concrete things that you've outlined there are both tangible and intangible. They're both very, very, very difficult. Having adults seed power to children, yes. um, put aside assumptions that we know best, put aside the sort of pigeonholing that we do um, and our unconscious bias, but very important. And if we have a will, ultimately doable um, but requires a huge change in mindsets as well as funding structures and uh, um, and red tape and all of those very tedious logistics that actually um, are, are sort of structural systems that keep the status quo going. Helen it's been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a huge amount and I'm absolutely sure our listeners will have done so as well. Um, really grateful to you for taking the time to talk us through that and to give us such a powerful and inspiring agenda to think about. Um, I very much hope that your ideas and your aspirations will be realized over time and your research is absolutely making a difference to that already. So thank you very much for joining me today at what was a very early hour in the morning in Australia and is now a somewhat later hour ready for your breakfast. Thank
1: you so much. It's been such a delight to speak with you and talk about these ideas with you.
0: And thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. Uh, do keep an eye or an ear out for more episodes coming soon. One of our upcoming guests is very well known to Helen, Professor Jay Marshall Byer, who's based at McMaster University. He's going to be talking about his research on the militarisation of childhood and also the need for more child and youth participation in politics. So a similar topic to today's podcast and part of the Visualising War Project's ongoing exploration of the role that children's voices can and should play in wider conversations about conflict. If you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. If you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you for listening.